And if they had failed, if they had been caught, not only would they have been killed, but can use your imagination as to where they were, right? Like, okay, that would have been a giant international incident. We had a brand new president that year. It would have just been a total, I mean, a gigantic disaster for the United States. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harshaw Jr., and today I bring you Chris Warner. Chris is a climber, entrepreneur, and leadership educator. And before you think this is just another adventurer and entrepreneur, wait until you hear what I'm about to tell you about this guy. He's led over 230 mountaineering expeditions all over the world, Asia, North and South America, Africa, Antarctica. He guided the first ever reality TV show on Mount Everest, and he filmed an Emmy-nominated documentary about his team's K2 climb. K2 is widely considered the hardest mountain to climb in the world. He pioneered new routes throughout the Himalaya mountains. In 1990, he started a business with $592, and he grew it into the first national chain of indoor climbing gyms. And when he retired as the CEO, the company had 1,000 employees and was serving 2 million customers annually. He sold that business to a private equity firm for tens of millions of dollars. He's an investor now in private companies. He's a mentor to CEOs and real estate developer. He's also a real estate developer in Aspen, Colorado. And while he was building his business and leading expeditions, he was asked by some covert and special ops teams, this is where it gets interesting, to teach them how to like create and lead high-performance teams. And he shares a story in the middle of this episode that is, <laughs> it's like maybe the best story I've ever heard in the podcast. And I've had, you know, Robert O'Neill, who, you know, is a Navy SEAL who shot and killed Osama bin Laden. I've interviewed Joe Pistone, who is Donnie Brasco, the FBI agent who infiltrated the mafia. I've interviewed Kenny Thomas, who, you know, was on the ground in the battle for Mogadishu, known as Black Hawk Down. I put those at the top of any stories I've ever heard on the podcast. Chris's stories rival those. So what you're about to hear is some pretty absurd stuff. Now, his work with the CIA and the office of the director of the National Intelligence Agency and the National Counterterrorism Task Force led him to 16 years teaching MBA candidates at Wharton, the Wharton Business School at the University of Pennsylvania. And then during his 25 plus years as a leadership educator, he's worked with executives from Google and the NFL and NHL teams, Fortune 500 firms, Silicon Valley startups, and like thousands of CEOs and senior leadership teams. What you're about to hear is these are stories from a man who has experienced incredible tragedy. And he shares a story pretty early on in the episode here and just absolute, you know, he's been to the top of the world. I mean, literally and figuratively. And he talks about leading teams in probably the single most challenging leadership environment there could be. And this is the mountaineering expeditions. And I say that knowing that I know that war is maybe the most challenging in other ways, but the unique situations when uh, on a mountaineering expedition where you're in a foreign land, you're dealing with foreign languages and foreign currency and you're resource limited because you can only carry what you have on your back. You're dealing with egos and international travel and gear and gear that fails and weather that can turn on a dime and that kills people. Chris's stories are from real world experience. So wait until you just hear these stories and just be regaled by the stories and have some fascinating, absolutely practical, usable takeaways from an absolutely incredible individual. Give this one a share. Give it a like. Give it a share. If you want to give it a 
rating and review on iTunes or uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on. That goes a long way in growing this podcast to help me get guests like Chris. So, all right, without further ado, let's get into my fascinating interview with Chris Warner. What brought you into mountaineering? How did you end up getting started in that in the first place? A parole officer. So when I was a, a sophomore in high school, I was an extremely entrepreneurial kid. And I grew up right outside of New York City. And when I was 15 years old, the parole officer dragged me and 11 other kids out in the woods. And this was kind of the heyday of that hoods in the woods era. And the thought was that if we take you out and expose you to some kind of hardship, that you might come back a better version of yourself. And I loved this trip. It was five days in the woods. We used a map and a compass to navigate. We slept under a plastic tarp, cooked our food over a fire. We climbed and rappelled. And I loved it so much that I decided I was going to spend the rest of my life doing trips like that. So here was a kid born in New York City, grew up in the suburbs of New Jersey, suddenly having a total love of the wilderness. And I worked for that same program when I was 17. And we took kids out of the maximum security prison in New Jersey. So here I was a 17-year-older with these you know, 15 and 16-year-olders who were in maximum security prison. And then since then, I've stayed in the outdoor world. And you know, I've done everything from guiding Mount Everest to climbing you know, the highest peaks on a bunch of continents. And I've taught tens and tens of thousands of people how to climb and you know, how to use a map and a compass and how to sleep under a plastic tarp and make food over a fire. Wow. The outdoors is a world I am absolutely in love with. Also, I've led adventure camping tours, done a, a fair bit of rock climbing and whitewater kayaking myself, but nothing remotely close to anything that you've done. You've led over 200 expeditions, mountaineering expeditions, and there are so many variables when it comes to an expedition. And for those who haven't watched the documentaries or read the books or participated in stuff like this, I mean, this, you know, there's international travel, there's tens of thousands of dollars worth of gear, there's language barriers, there's, you know, adverse conditions, there's egos, there's life and death situations. I mean, it makes leadership in any other environment you know, seem like a walk in the park. I don't know if there's a better leadership incubator or leadership test anywhere. Chris, you found a lot of success in that world. What makes you good at this? I and mean, why do you think you've found success? Ooh, okay. I think there's a couple of reasons why I found success. One is obviously a natural curiosity, but I think most importantly is when I was working for the same program in New Jersey, the guy who ran that program said to me one day, you know, Chris, there's nothing as contagious as enthusiasm. And I have totally bought into that theory. So when you were on an expedition, there's always really dark periods, you know, whether it's caused by the weather, whether it's caused by interpersonal conflict, whatever it happens to be. And it's at those moments, just like in business, where your emotion infects the rest of the group. And remembering that there is nothing as contagious as emotions. If I want to have a positive outcome, I better bring positive emotions to this. So it's certainly my passion for the whole experience and my ability to infect my teammates with just joy in those difficult moments is definitely the number one contributor to all of the success I've had. Can you manufacture enthusiasm? Uh, obviously, it has to be genuine at some level, but how do you bring enthusiasm if you don't necessarily feel it that day? Okay. Let's say you have a team. So you're the manager in a company right now. And you know, we talk about authenticity. What we're really looking for is the authentic emotion relative to the experience that you're going through. So there's times like if somebody is caught embezzling money from the company, you don't want me to be enthusiastic, right? You actually want me to be angry 
this is a, a brutal blow to all of us. So if I bring the wrong emotion to the moment, then I'm not going to be seen as being authentic. People won't be able to relate to me. So just think of it as if you were watching a movie and they miscast the hero of the story. They put in an actor who just didn't embody those behaviors that you think this person has. When you leave the movie, you're like, yeah, it didn't quite make sense to me. You know, as being a good leader, you have to be in touch with your emotions and you have to make sure you're in touch with what emotional state is required in the moment. There are times, of course, when you have to amplify those emotions to make a point. So there's been times like, you know, I've had thousands of employees when somebody does something stupid, right? So if I have a 20 year old kid who does something stupid, like, of course they do stupid things. I did tons of stupid things at 20. In my heart, I'm like, uh, you know, that was okay. That was not that bad. It was stupid. I may have to overreact in that situation to drive the lesson home to that person. When they talk about emotional intelligence, that's exactly what we're talking about. Did I bring the right emotion to the situation? And remembering that our emotions are contagious it's really most important that I bring the right emotion to this. And overall, the majority of the time, you better be bringing, you know, happiness, you know, positive emotions to your team. In fact, when we look at positivity, like happiness, people that are happy are more productive, they're healthier, they make more money, they get more promotions. You know, your company makes more money in an environment where people are happy. And the opposite is true if you have cynics on your team. There's a reason why cynics die younger than happy people. They generally die with less friends and they die with less money. So if you are surrounded by cynics, if you're the boss, you should actually ask them to work for your competitor. If you're not the boss, maybe it's a good time to go to your competitor where everybody's happy. But bringing that happiness, especially when things are terrible, like you're in the middle of a blizzard, if you're holding on for your life on the side of a, of a thing, like this is a really good time to bring positive emotions to the situation. And the interesting thing about what you just said, like when you're you know hanging on the edge or you're in a blizzard, like Chris, you've actually been on the edge and fallen into crevasses and been in blizzards and not the kind of blizzard that me and the rest of the listeners think about when we think of a blizzard. You've been on K2 when it's, you know, snowing and blowing and, and experiencing the harshest of those examples. Those are not tongue in cheek sort of like examples that you gave. You've lived those and walked through those and actually led people in those environments when you yourself are at your maximum, you know, you're freezing cold, you're exhausted and breathing hard. And you've lived through that. And I want to pull some leadership experiences and lessons from you. Yeah. Okay. So let me tell you about a leadership experience that I had, like a big, powerful learning for me. I was on a team, an international team of 12 of the best climbers in the world. And we were attempting to climb K2, which is considered to be the most dangerous mountain in the world. And our group proved pretty quickly not to be a team. There was 11 prima donnas and myself, right? So we were at the base of the mountain. We were strapping our crampons on our boots. We're about to start this 11,000 foot climb towards the summit. And as we're strapping our crampons on, one of the people in the team starts to scream and they're pointing up and literally through the clouds. K2 is so steep. Like imagine standing at the base of a skyscraper and through the clouds was a body falling through the air. And the man was alive at the time. And you could see him trying to swim, right? His arms were waving, his feet were waving. He's trying to save himself, but it's impossible. He literally slams into the side of K2. There's a gigantic explosion of red. The body bounces out another 500 feet. There's another explosion of red, another 200 feet, another 300 feet. And eventually he comes to a stop 500 feet away from 12 of the best climbers in the world. 
and he's, his body lands on the trail. And it's obvious that he's dead. There's no way you could have survived this. And if you'd just seen these giant explosions of red, you know, this is what you would know. And only two of the 12 of us had the courage to, I mean, not even the courage. We just reacted. It was instinct. We grabbed our backpacks. We raced up the hill to where his body landed. And when we got to him, he was the most traumatized body I'd ever seen. And I had seen a lot of death. And the man who went with me, his name was Lieutenant Colonel Rod Richardson from the U.S. Marine Corps. He was a Marine recon officer. He had served two tours of duty in Vietnam. He'd been shot four times in his back in Lebanon. He'd been in every single firefight except for Granada. And at the end of the expedition, he actually went to Afghanistan to be Hamid Karzai's head of security. Eventually, he was killed by al-Qaeda in Iraq. But at this moment, the two of us, so here's two pretty badass you know, guys, and we had both seen lots of death, and we stopped five feet from the body, and we literally held hands, and we just had to calm ourselves down. And I don't know if you've ever been with somebody when they're dying. I'm, you, you've obviously, as a dad, you've been with people when they were born. And like when you're in the delivery room and the baby comes out and takes their first breath and you can literally see their body transform, right? They go from purple to pink in that moment. And man, like everybody in the room is overwhelmed by love. So the first emotion that your baby experiences coming into the world is love. And we knew that our job was to send this man's soul out with love. And so we had so much fear in ourselves. I mean, having watched this, having looked at his body, we held our hands until we could calm down. And then we just gently placed our hands on this man's body for five or 10 minutes. And all we did was push all of our love into his, hoping that his soul would feel this. And then we had to package him up. It was, I mean, the back of his head was the source of all the bleeding. His hips were pulverized. So his legs were underneath his body. We had to pull out one leg and pull out the other. We were literally covered in, in blood by the time we were done. And we made a stretcher out of some sleeping pads and we put him inside of a sleeping bag and we lowered him down to where these 10 other climbers were. And, uh, you know, we barking orders. We had to get him ready for packaging up so we could carry him back to base camp. And as we were standing there, suddenly the anxiety just totally took over. And I was getting stabbed in the gut a thousand times, right? And I literally bent over and I started bawling crying. There's no crying on an expedition, right? Especially crying in front of like 12 of the biggest badasses in the world. And I'm bowling crying and I look up at these people. And the reason I was crying was because I realized I can't trust these people. The people who I'm climbing this peak with were not worthy of my trust. They wouldn't go 500 feet to help a dead person. They were never going to go 5,000 5, feet to help me if I broke my leg or sprained my ankle or had any problems. And so I literally just looked at these people crying. And I said to them, you know what? This is how much I distrusted them. I had to tell them at that moment that today's my birthday and I quit the expedition. And I, mean, I was so lucky to leave. That year, two people died on that mountain. Nobody summited. Of the 12 people on that expedition, only six of us are still alive, actually. I pouted all the way back to the United States. It's a five-day walk to the nearest village. And then it's a two-day drive to the nearest airport. And then it's a two-day flight back to the United States. So, you know, for nine days, I'm just pouting, pouting, pouting. But I vowed I would go back. And then I actually went back to K2 and was successful on it in the end. And my number one criteria for choosing a teammate was not how good of a climber they were, because these other 10, 12 people were amazing climbers. It was, are you trustworthy? And it was to putting together a team of people that I knew I could trust. If I broke my leg, if I sprained my ankle, if something happened to me, same thing for you. 
that these people would be there for you. And that was a major, a super powerful lesson for me. I was, you know, in my mid thirties and suddenly I realized, oh my God, the most important thing for a teammate is, are they trustworthy? But Chris, how do you do that? Interview process, conversations, background checks, you know, calling references and kind of translating that from like the mountaineering world to the real world, whether the listener is a teacher leading a classroom or a, you know, a manager leading a team in a business. How do you check for trustworthiness? Well, one thing I learned about myself is I'm actually a terrible judge of character. I actually love everybody when I meet them. I'm like naturally fascinated with them. And so I've learned that I need a team to help me make those decisions. And in my company, I ran it for you know 20 something years. And in the end, we had over a thousand employees. So we were totally dependent upon group interviews. Everybody had to be interviewed by multiple people just because it's easy to be enamored with somebody. Different people have different filters for this. And, you know, clearly my filter in character judgment was broken, but other people's had great things. But hopefully, you know, through the interaction, maybe if I was part of the interview process, I could say something that would spark somebody to see, you know, a little bit more into somebody's soul than I could see. But yeah, we were huge on group interviews. Okay. So the importance of team, the importance of leaning on other people. You know, I know one of the concepts that you talk a lot about is loan heroism. You know, like so many leaders feel like they have to do it alone. And you were the leader of a company. You started a massively successful company with $592. Did you go it alone? I mean, I don't know if you have any examples. You've proven that you couldn't do it alone and, and you had to lean on others. Yeah. So I fear loan heroism. So loan heroism is really the concept that, like you're saying, you could do it alone. And it's kind of like the American ideal, right? The frontiers person, you know, the explorer, whatever it is. And in truth, even though like I've soloed a lot of peaks, like if you've watched, you know, Alex Honnold soloing El Cap, et cetera, like even though he's physically alone, he's connected to tons of other people. And it's really the power of that community that allowed him to be successful that way. Just like the same thing for me when I was, you know, I've sold all sorts of big peaks, but in business, loan heroism will kill you. And you see this all the time with entrepreneurs, like failed entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs that they hit a plateau and can't get past that point is because they don't know how to build a team. And most importantly, they lack for is mentors, other heroes in their life that they can hang around with. And my success, I never, ever was a, a student in a business class. The first time I ever stepped into a business school was to teach. And I didn't know anything. I needed people to teach me how to use Excel spreadsheets, how to market, how to brand, how to clean bathrooms. And so if you can't attract mentors, and I had five or six mentors that I could call at four o'clock in the morning with a problem. Like if you don't have that, I fear for your success. I certainly will not invest in your company if you do not have those kinds of relationships. I'll be honest, Chris, when I first got connected with you through Travis Macy, who's a mutual friend of ours. For listeners, you know, Travis, I've had him on a couple of times now. I didn't know what to expect. A guy like yourself who's been successful at so many different things, you know, we tend to have this idea that a leader that is ultra successful and someone like yourself who's been, you know, successful not only in mountaineering, but also as an entrepreneur and business leader, also as a leadership speaker and coach and consultant, you think that this person is going to be arrogant, thinks they know it all. You don't come across that way at all. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. No, it goes to the theme of your show, right? It's like when you have failed as often as I have, then you, how could you be arrogant? And 
Jim Collins, the great business thinker, wrote Built to Last, Good to Great, etc. He's also a climber. And he and I collaborated on a book a long time ago. And we each contributed a chapter. And his chapter was called Climb to Failure, Not Failure. And the truth is, in climbing, the whole sport is about failure. Like you're taking your family to the climbing gym today. When they try a boulder problem, the idea is that the first time you go up on it, you probably won't be successful. And it might not be till the 10th time that you're successful, but each time you're learning something, you're learning how to, you know, the subtleties of moving your hips, you know, how to grip something, et cetera. And it's this process that's so built into the sport of climbing. And as a result of that, your whole mindset is using failure to achieve your goal and fail early and often. But as a result of that, it really does teach humility because some of these failures are incredibly expensive. And sadly, I mean, look, I just came off of two peaks in the Himalayas this spring, the Dalagiri, the seventh highest peak, and Kachinjunga, the third highest peak. And on both those expeditions, two days after I summited, a friend died. And then the other one, two days before I summited, a man died. We were actually, the, myself and two other guys were the first ones to find his body. So we understand the consequences of our sport. And as a result of that, you have to be humbled. Arrogance is believing that the rules do not apply to you. And gravity applies to everyone, right? And in fact, those two men, and I'm not saying this out of disrespect, those two men were not killed by the mountain. They killed themselves in the mountain. And in fact, when we look at the statistics of climbing Mount Everest, the top four reasons why people die is because of human error. They overestimate their abilities. They have a difficulty processing new data that's coming in, like changing weather patterns, et cetera. So as a result of this, you know, like you are taught, do not be arrogant. Yes, you can push the limits of the sport. Yes, you can, you know, go out and do the most extreme things ever, but do not be arrogant. The rules apply to you. Gravity, you know, it sucks. Quick interruption. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to get the notes, quotes, and links in the action plan from this episode. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. That's jimharshawjr.com slash action to get your free copy of the action plan. Now back to the show. In your environment of mountaineering, sometimes failure is not an option, right? The concept of success through failure you know, how does that apply on the mountain? I mean, you know, you have to go through these failures, but boy, sometimes the failure is the ultimate consequence. Is success through failure a thing in mountaineering? Well, you're right, right? Because our consequence is so extreme. In a mountaineering team and a lot of other teams, we are resource restrained. We cannot carry enough oxygen bottles, ropes, tents, you know, all the stuff that you would imagine, right? Because we've got to put it in our backpack and carry it in our back. So I'm going to tell you a story, I think, which makes this point perfectly. So I was hired to train a group of spies and their job was to put listening posts in vertical environments. And so this group, after six weeks of training, the last day, this final exam. Now, when you say vertical environments, do you mean like vertical as in on buildings or... The story involves an elevator shaft, <laughs> but in the end, yeah. But they were taught, you're going into a foreign you know, capital city where you're an enemy and you need to put listening posts in you know, different government offices. You can't carry tons of equipment with you, right? So I was teaching them how to use the minimalist approach to solve the most amount of problems. And in the process of teaching them, I realized that these guys, they were seduced by the tools. They thought that if I had carabiners and harnesses and all this other stuff were just fascinating them. And then how do you use these tools, right? 
So they had great tools, right, which we taught them how to use. They also were taught techniques on how to use these tools. Like how do you build a zip line, right? How do you build a Tyrolean traverse? How do you haul heavy stuff up a vertical thing, right, with these tools that you have? So they were experts at the tools and techniques. But there's three drivers of results. There's you got to have the right tools. You got to have the right techniques. But most importantly, you have to have the right behaviors. And watching this group, right, this group of covert operators over six weeks, I realized their flaw was their behaviors. They put the emphasis on tools and techniques. So if they had a situation, they always came with the most elegant solution to this instead of sometimes just using brawn, like taking two people to pull something instead of just a system that they were built. So anyway, I get them to the final exam and I realize I have to fail them. I have to create a final exam where they're going to fail. Otherwise, they're not going to learn the most important thing is that behaviors drive results. Well, they fail this. They're completely disappointed, right? We, of course, we do an after action review. Well, a bunch of weeks later, I get a phone call from the NSA. This team is on the roof of a building in a midi city. They're trapped. They had been found out. The police had surrounded the building. They were waiting for the Republican Guard to come in. They were one helicopter gunship away from being blown out of the way. Nine guys, right? So they called the NSA. The NSA patches me in and say, Chris, here's the situation. And I'm like, and you could hear the panic in their voices. And I'm like, holy cow. I'm like, and then they describe the streets that they're on, et cetera. And I'm like, do you guys have a grappling hook? And they're like, yeah. We talk them through how to build a zip line from one building to the next. They had to go nine blocks right? They all got out alive. Oh my God, it was so mind-blowing. They get back to the United States and we have an after-action review, which is standard in these situations. And so as we're going through it, they kept coming back to the same thing. It's like, it wasn't the grappling hook. It wasn't the knots. It wasn't what we call a Z-line drag tightening system, right? It was the behaviors. Like you taught us how to work together as a team in a life or death situation. And if they had failed, if they had been caught, not only would they have been killed, but can use your imagination as to where they were, right? Like, okay, that would have been a giant international incident. We had a brand new president that year. It would have just been a total, I mean, a gigantic disaster for the United States. But it was behaviors that drive results. And I find the same thing when I teach groups. It's reminding them constantly that it's behaviors that drive results. And it's the bad behaviors or the misaligned behaviors of your team that are actually going to always are going to cause you profitability, productivity, you know, just general happiness. Yeah. And for the listener, a lot of the points that we're talking about right here are directly in a workbook that Chris offers for free on his website. We'll have the link to that. And it's totally free. It's a great PDF. It's 23 pages. I've got it pulled up in front of me. It's a fantastic resource. And it really crystallizes a lot of the points that we're covering here sort of indirectly. I will have the link to that. It's at chrisbwarner.com. And you'll find the link there to download this for free. It's fascinating. Another thing that you see in business environments, and I imagine it happens on the mountain and on expeditions, is people getting complacent right? Getting comfortable, thinking things are easy, maybe letting their guard down. Do you come across that at times on the mountain? Yeah, you absolutely do. So, you know, going back to the, how people die on the mountain. So when you study this, there's actually 19 ways that you can die climbing Mount Everest. And when I used to guide Mount Everest, I would tell people all the time, like, you need to memorize these red flags, because if you see one of these pop up or two of these things pop up, you better self-select to turn around and go back home. You could always come back next year. It's even worse, clearly, 
in a business environment. So I think of comfort, right? The pursuit of comfort or just, you know, this idea that we're going to stop demanding the most of each other because we're comfortable, but we don't want to hurt people's feelings, et cetera. I, I see that as one of the greatest dangers that teams face. And we really, as you know, leaders, but also like, it's not just the leaders whose responsibility this is. It's everybody's responsibility to make sure that there's a little bit of like conflict in a constructive way. Like if you read a book or watch a movie, every great piece of literature involves, you know, a main character. And what makes this literature great is that this character develops through the course of the book and they develop because of conflict. So it might be an interpersonal conflict. It might be two characters that don't get along with each other, right? It might be people dealing with their self-doubt. Well, conflict is critical to personal development. I mean, you know this from raising your children, right? You have to let them be in situations that are difficult. And as a result of that, they're going to develop as a person, right? We call it self-efficacy, the ability to be knocked down and stand back up again. But conflict is important in business. And Conflict can be the source of creativity, right? It can be the source of, you know, in fact, when you study older businesses, businesses that have been around for a long time, you always find that the reason they succeeded was because a small group within the company actually was working to put the bigger company out of business. Think of banking, right? So banking used to be a real estate business. If I had the best locations, then I actually could get the most deposits. And then somebody, you know, some little kid decided... Why don't we go do online banking? We don't have to be a real estate business anymore to get people's deposits. We could do it on their phone, et cetera. So there's always a subgroup in the company that's trying to put the rest of the business out of business. So we need conflict to evolve. We need, you and I, our listeners need conflict to continue to grow as people. How do we incorporate that into our lives? Because right now, you know, the listener might be on cruise control. I don't know, right? We all have sort of these other conflicts in our lives. You know, things are, never seem like they're totally perfect, of course. But are there ways to introduce conflict? You know, do you want to welcome that in? And, and if so, how do you do it? Is it simply a sense of, you know, set your goals higher and do harder things? And, you know, I heard this quote this morning, bite off more than you can chew and then chew like crazy. How does the listener go and, and use that idea? Yeah. Well, clearly I'm way into giant goals, right? Like you don't climb K2 and Mount Everest. You don't start a business with $592. Like you don't do these things if you're not into gigantic goals. So, so maybe I'm a little bit warped in my idea, but having worked with so many groups and having had so many employees, et cetera, I do know that how you construct the goal is critically important. And I had the pleasure of talking to Professor Locke, and he actually, if you look online, you might be able to find Locke's seven stages of goal development. A couple of key pieces of this that go back to our conversation. Number one is the goal has to be improbable, not impossible. It has to be difficult. It has to demand a change in people's behaviors in order for success to happen. So when you're choosing goals, you have to be careful. You don't choose, you know, easy goals, et cetera, right? Like a 3% increase in sales or whatever it happens to be, right? So we got to make sure the goal is improbable if we're going to have changes in behaviors. And the reason as a parent or a leader or a teacher, we create goals is because we're trying to get people to evolve, right? To become a better version of themselves. And so it is our responsibility to set goals that are, again, improbable, but not impossible. The second piece that he would tell you is that you're probably not the best person to come up with your team's goals. Like if we sit around the same group that meet every Monday and we come up with our business goals, all we know is what we know. And it's really by going out and talking to other people, talking to customers, talking to competitors, talking to 
people in R&D or whatever. That's where we really will come up with the best improbable goal. We have to look outside of our own knowledge base, you know, our comfortable little group of friends, you know, th- to be able to come up with the right improbable goal. And then the third thing we definitely say is you have to stop and assess throughout there because you might have actually chosen a terrible goal. You thought it was great in the beginning. So he's big on abandoning goals. And the last thing is when you do succeed, celebrate. And I find entrepreneurs, managers are terrible at celebration. And, you know, we've talked quite a bit offline. And one of the things we wanted to talk about was some takeaways. And I don't know if this is a good time to transition to that. Because I, when I work with groups, I tell people that there's six psychological needs that you have as a member of a team. And if you're not meeting these needs of your teammates, you will make them dysfunctional. And I'm sure people have taken jobs in the past and they have arrived there with all the enthusiasm in the world, with a desire to absolutely crush it in this new environment, only to find that their energy gets sapped, their enthusiasm gets sapped, that they feel like they've made a terrible choice. And as a result, that they quit the company or even worse, they just hang out there forever. And it's because when you got there, people did not meet your six psychological needs. They might've met two or three of them, but they didn't meet all of them. So these are the needs. Number one is respect, right? We have to give respect and receive respect, right? And as a leader, you have to give people respect from day one. You Like this whole idea, like, oh, they have to earn my respect. That's a sociopathic response to that whole thing. So as a leader, you give people instantly their, your respect and then you earn their respect back. Number two is recognition. We have to stop and thank people. Gratitude is another contagious emotion, right? The third one is meaning. We have to connect the work that people are doing to a greater good, a sense of purpose, et cetera. And there's a lot of ways to do that. The fourth one is autonomy, which goes back to the whole thesis of your podcast, which is letting people fail. If you micromanage people, you will make them dysfunctional. You have to give them room right, to experiment, to make mistakes, et cetera. Personal growth. People have to feel that they're actually developing, that they're becoming a better version of themselves through this whole process. And the last one is belonging. And I am sure everybody who's listening to this has an experience where they're on a team where either they felt like they didn't belong, like they weren't part of the cool clique or whatever, or they were part of the cool clique and people didn't belong. And as a result of that, when people don't feel like they belong, they do not give the effort that is needed, especially in times of crisis. So if I was going to give any advice to everybody is write these six things down, right? You could hit rewind on this, but it's respect, recognition, meaning, autonomy, personal growth, and belonging. And I had, as I said, over a thousand employees. Every single person in a position of management was given a graph and to have those six psychological needs on one line. And on the other line is their direct reports. The average manager in America has 12.4 direct reports. So you can make you do a little bunch of columns and you put everybody's name. So I'm going to put Jim's name here and I'm going to grade myself at the end of the week. Did I give Jim you know, recognition? Was I micromanaging him? Did I help him see how this work that he's doing connects to some greater good, right? Meaning and give yourself a grade. And once these become habituated, right, then all of a sudden you're going to be an infinitely better manager and you're going to find people who are slightly dysfunctional are going to become high functioning teammates. And for the listener who hears these six words and thinks to themselves like, gosh, I've heard all of those words before. Chris, I was looking for something new. I thought it was going to be like this new tool or like I click my heels three times 
spin in a circle and, and drink like a new energy drink out there, then that, I thought that was the magic trick that was going to really be the takeaways here. But these are like fundamental things. Write these down for the listener. Take a post-it note, write them on a post-it note, stick them on the corner of your desk for a week, a month, a year, the rest of your career. Print out the action plan from this episode because I'm going to have all those in the action plan. Like you actually have to do these. Like the people who find success, and this is a guy talking directly to the listener right now. This is a guy who has found success, not in one thing, not in two things, but at least three, maybe four. Could you're a real estate investor, like four or probably more things that we don't even know about you right now, Chris. This is a guy who's found success in so many different areas, and he's saying these things, and he crystallized these six things for you. Are you going to let him go in one ear and out the other and go, that's great. Let me go back to checking my email and, and managing the same way I've always been managing? Or are you going to do something about it? And Chris obviously gave you a tactic for doing something about it. He shared how he did this with his company that he started for $592 with $592. And he started this multi-tens of million dollar company and he used this tactic, right? And this goes back to, and longtime listeners, you know what I'm going to say. This is a productive pause. And if you haven't heard that term before, the definition is this. It's a short period of focused reflection around specific questions that leads to clarity of action and peace of mind. These are questions that Chris said that he had his managers ask themselves every week and they graded themselves. They didn't just, it wasn't just something they talked about. They actually did it. They put this in place so that they can act upon this and live this out, not just have these concepts that were discussed in a meeting that took place a month ago that nobody remembers today because they're too busy, you know, bogged down in the minutia of their job. Do something about it. Chris, for the listener who wants to buy your books, follow you more on social media, find your website, download your workbook. Can you share again where they can go and find any of those things? Yeah, I'm terrible at social media, but I am on Instagram. And then I have a website and they both have the same, you know, handle or whatever you guys call this stuff. So it's Chris B as in boy Warner. So if you go to Instagram, Chris B Warner, if you go, you know, www.chrisbwarner.com, you'll find me. And if you go on the website, one thing I would encourage you to do is, is poke around and try to find, you know, the media section because you can actually go and watch our K2 documentary. So we filmed our K2 expedition for NBC Sports and we were nominated for six Emmys. And it was, you know, pretty fun to go to the Emmy Awards, even though we didn't win. <laughs> so, yeah, you could watch the whole thing. You could watch three knuckleheads get the knots and kicked out of them, you know, by the weather and all the other stuff that happens on K2. Yeah, it is a fascinating documentary. So I encourage the listeners to do exactly that and watch it. I'll have those links in the action plan and where you can find Chris. I'll have those easily accessible for all the listeners. Chris, thanks so much for making time. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for listening. If you want to apply these principles into your life, let's talk. You can see the limited spaces that are open on my calendar at jimharshawjr.com slash apply, where you can sign up for a free one-time coaching call directly with me. And don't forget to grab your action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. And lastly, iTunes tends to suggest podcasts with more ratings and reviews more often. You would totally make my day if you give me a rating and review. Those go a long way in helping me grow the podcast audience. Just open up your podcast app if you have an iPhone, do a search for success through failure, select it, and then scroll the whole way to the bottom where you can leave the podcast a rating and a review. Now, I hope this isn't just another podcast episode for you. I hope you take action on what you learned here today. Good luck and thanks for listening.